Welcome everybody. We've got an uh, awesome guest with us today, uh, David Fa'avai. Atta's in the background, so if you hear somebody else ask questions, it's either coming from me or Atta. Uh, but Dave, we'll turn it to you. Um, appreciate you being willing to share with the world, the, the handful of folks who listen, uh, some of your knowledge and experience. But I'll let you introduce yourself and and tell us a bit about yourself and, and, uh, and what you do. Malo bito ten, mo Atta. Tapu me moe moe taiha mai, tapu moe ngahi tōu, moe nau tōu hono kotoa, oku heni, moe nau tōu hono kotoa, oukai ke nau heni. Ko ki ngā ko David Fa'avai, my name is David Fa'avai, I'm uh, of Tongan heritage, uh, Samoan as well, and my fonua, my placenta is in New Way, so I place a connection to New Way as well. I am the grandson of Sione Taufui Mikato Fa'avai and Vikalata Heanga Fosta on my paternal side and on my maternal side, Sione Pito Masi, Mo Merenaite Vetekina Jennings. Hello. You know, there's a lot of stuff we, we might get into. We'll see where, where we go. But I know one of the things that um, you've done in your work, and when, you know, when we first met, and um, and also some one of the interests that you've expressed as of late as well, is um, this idea of intergenerationality, mm -hmm. right? Or, or intergenerational relationships. And uh, one of the things that I like about what you're doing is. It's very different from maybe the dominant discourse around intergenerational. Usually, when we say intergenerational, the first thing that comes to mind for me is intergenerational trauma, right? And mm. it's very important to confront, very important to deal with. But what I like that you've done is you've, you, you're looking at a different uh, element that takes place through intergenerational relationships as well within your doctoral research and some of the questions you've been asking as of late as well. And, and that's what I think is really rich. And so I'm wondering if you mind giving a little bit of a background as to your work there and your interests around that and why you approach it the way that you do. The point you make then is a really important one around trauma and the brown body quite often, you know, growing up in New Zealand, the brown body was often seen as, as that of violence, you know, and, and problematic. Um, so intergenerationality, anything around intergeneration rationalism has always been framed from that psychology kind of discipline. You know, being always causing problems, um, and that being passed down from tangata or generation to generation. So it's really an opportunity for me because I, I value my grandparents. You know, my struggling with my own parents to start to kind of make sense of them, you know, and their expectations of us. Um, my grandparents were kind of the alleviators. They were they were the people that. You know, when they saw us, they um, they knew when to intervene. Um, my grandfather passed away when I was um, kind of going through the phase of being of having rheumatic heart disease, um, and 
my grandmother was was around after that but they were key people that I went to and and then sort of seeing the value of being around them but I never really appreciated the significance of it until I sort of came and did my postgrad especially my my doctoral studies which looked at what were the worthwhile things the knowledges the values that were and the practices that were shared deliberately by them because they could foresee its value for our future when we didn't um, yeah so that that's that was kind of the the thinking around that important idea for me no that's that's awesome Martha, do you have any questions on because i know you're dealing with family stuff too yeah they also Daniel was the one who introduced me and Dave, and we actually met in Tonga when I was there mm. for my research. And uh, I was also playing around with the idea of, of intergenerational-ism um, or just intergenerational families, right? Da Dave and I had a cup of coffee, um, and then we continued to uh, build our relationship in Tonga while he was there, and then he eventually moved back when I was in, when I was in Tonga. But it's, it's, for me, it kind of pushes against uh, you know these dominant narratives of the nuclear family because it's so centered on parents and children, where it connects you know parents to their parents or children to their to their grandparents and vice versa, um, and it kind of just pushes against these um, these ideas of the family because in Tonga, you know the the nuclear family is there, but it's really the the intergenerational clan or clan system, the Kainga that actually dominates everyday life for many Tongans, both in, in Loto Tonga and Dua Tonga. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking as you're, the way you're framing it too, Dave, is like, um, like the insights that they had, right, for, for you know, their mokupuna and, and thinking um, from their perspective. And I know it's something that we've, we've all kind of discussed or talked about a little bit in the past as well and different things, but um, the idea of time and temporality for me, just mm. I couldn't help but think about that. As well, right? Where, you know, literally the, the past and the and the future are facing each other, right? Where you have these young people who who have this potential for unraveling time more as they're still growing up, and then you have these older people who have already unraveled so much time in their life, and having that relationship and connection really is that interface of the past and the future happening right now, and I and I really like that. Um, and I know that the other thing that you were doing though as well was looking at like education. And, and thinking about knowledge, wisdom, and even kind of navigating, I think, dominant school structures also. I don't want to wonder if you mind sharing a little bit about that, because, or, and maybe, yeah, maybe this, how do you see yourself positioned in regards to education as a field versus, like, education as just learning, right? Because I know you you do all kinds of stuff beyond just the education field, mm. um, formally speaking, but, yeah, I don't know what you think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I'll, I'll tell the story because I think it's significant to sort of tell my journey, how I ended up in education because it was a field that that I never really valued. It wasn't a field that I wanted to get into. Um, but because I began my undergrad studies in psychology, um, and I did it here at, at Auckland, very very white space. I could pick probably three three of us you know, from the Pacific who started off doing an undergrad in, in psychology at Auckland. But over time, just doing that degree itself kind of forced some, I forced ideas, imposed ideas on us about 
what what it meant to frame the Pacific person, you know, or, or the psyche of a Pacific person. Um, and it was problematic for me because I, I couldn't see the richness in, you know, understanding the world that Pacific people come from. Um, and it was mainly framed from this violent sort of, you know, frame of this is the problem, this is how they do it, and they're going to share that, pass that on to the next generation. Um, education came kind of later, and I think my faith kicked in at that time where I was struggling to find out what was I going to do with my psychology degree. Um, I went to work after I graduated because my parents needed us to work. We had to go and, and uh, you know, make money so that we can, we can help them because they were both on the benefit. This is the, the welfare system that New Zealand has, and they both weren't working because Dad had gout and picked up, you know, so he couldn't work anymore. Education came later because of the, the need that our youth, that I saw. Our youth were needing a bit more guidance around what was happening in schools. I mean, I never always enjoyed high school, but I could see that these problems, our young people were facing it at the time. This was probably, yeah, early, early 2000s. I ventured into that because I knew, you know, this was an area of need. Um, and so I, I decided to do my teaching, um, graduate diploma, and then started teaching back at my old high school in South Auckland. Um, you know, the place where I didn't always feel comfortable in, but knew, you know, somebody had to be there to help, help the next generation. And so just over time, I think, spending time in education, I realised that the system, this dominant system, this Western system, frames the way that we think about education and learning and teaching. Um, and then you lose yourself in it because the, the models and the approaches that they, they say is important for you know, students to succeed are not from our way of thinking. You know, they were always brought from, from the West, always brought from America. They were the, the approaches that were valued at the time. And I think they still value those approaches now. Um, so that's how I ended up in education, because I got caught up in the system, trying to make changes for Pacific families in, in South Auckland. I got caught up in, in, in the system and feeling helpless in it. Um, you know, you, you kind of reach a, a, a phase and you're wondering, you know, is, is what you're doing really impactful for the families and the communities there? Um, how are our Pacific students going to succeed as Pacific rather than being forced to succeed a certain way or to be successful a certain way? did my postgraduate studies and that's kind of where it opened up a realization that there are ways to sort of try and disrupt this system. And it took me to sort of indigenous studies, critical indigenous studies at university, um, at Te Puna Wānanga, within the Faculty of Education and Social Work at Auckland. And, and they had really just a really good environment that looked after us. And, and we were able to sort of bring this, this space of Māori and Pacific. You know, it's not always encouraged in other places, but at Te Puna Wānanga we were able to bring our concerns and also just the philosophies 
together which allowed us to sort of make connections and also understand the the specificities that that Māori and Pacific or, and each Pacific nation bring. Is that a cup? Another one for you. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, no, I asked too just because uh, myself and Atta also have a master's in education. And so, man, when I did mine, never thought I was going to be education except for my undergrad. I liked the topics. But then I, did, I thought it was presented in such a boring way. Mm. And kind of what you're mentioning too, right? Like, there's a disconnect with the way I learned. Um, and the way that I had been raised to learn. I grew up with parents who were master storytellers, and so mm. it was very audio, right? And and um, and then here I had to like, it was just so different, but but it opened me up to realizing oh, all this stuff within the structures of education and how important it is to actually take it seriously. Mm. We we don't have to like it, but we need to understand because all over the world, young people are spending maybe most of their awake time mm. in a school in a structure that might be outside of your family or cultural tradition. And so it's important to really understand that as much as you can, I think. But in that regard, yeah, so I'm wondering if you, maybe I'll have my couple of you, you know, answer this, but like thinking um, around that, like the educational philosophy, what are some of the, I guess, maybe differences or similarities or, or, or where are you kind of headed in, in, in thinking about those different approaches? What are the, what do those different approaches look like? And, you know, what happens once we have to confront it with our current dominant system, you know? Mm. I mean, you, you, you kind of nailed it when you talked about just the way that when you enter into the system and you bring your own knowledge system with you and then you're faced with this particular system that has its own, you know, capital, the, the, the things that they value more. And so if you don't really understand or notice, if you don't notice those contentious moments, you end up just adopting the, the dominant because it's what every other teacher, it's what all the students have to, you know, um, to do and to learn a certain way. And we're, we're producing these kinds of thinkers all the time, you know, as schools being a factory. That philosophy wasn't kind of front in mind when I went into the system. I, postgraduate studies sort of taught me to look at it that way, to perceive it that way that education, the school, was kind of like a, a factory, you know, producing, reproducing certain types of people, certain types of thinkers um, into a system so that it can continue, you know, the ways that they've always, you know, feeding in and then people coming back and you know, sort of reproducing that. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been interesting because I, it's hard to get out of, I, I want to get out of that system, but I know that there people are needed in there, you know, critical critical thinkers who can contest the the Western philosophy um, and provide op, you know, possible ways to counter you know those narratives. You you need people in there, and that's why I like intergenerationality because it forces you to think, okay, this is where you are. You know who were there before you, and then what's going to happen to those that are coming after. So thinking in that kind of sort of um, multi, you know, a multiple perspective of um, what's happening and is it going to impact others, has always been helpful for me because I, you know, it's part of my service. 
Like you don't just do stuff for the sake of doing it. You you, you constantly have to think of tauhiva, tatau moe moe mamahit mea. You know, you I've got a son now, and I've got nephews and nieces, and I don't want them to go through the system feeling, you know, disabled, feeling like that they don't what they know doesn't matter in there. But I know I'm realistic in the sense, and we've had this talk, you know, the prior to this that it's not as simple as that. You can't, you know, yeah. it's it's not as simple as that. And but appreciating the the complex nature of how this education system functions is significant to pass on, you know, because because the next generation will probably have more more ideas to kind of you know intervene. Yeah, oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think that you know. That complexity is a key point, right? I just want to emphasize as well because I think you're, I'm, you know, listening to you and knowing you for as long as we've known you now, and and even our, you know, Corredo before we, we began recording, like um, you're 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 identifying complexity, and by doing so, that gives you a greater skill and capacity to navigate, and at the same time, right? You're then transmitting that, making that available for you know. The next generation, but then I'm also thinking about you and like your identity. When you talked about earlier, right? Like you're Tongan from all these other places, but you're also Samoan. But your Fenua is in Niwe, and then you're here in Aotearoa, right? Like you have this complexity as well. And I would argue that people are complex, right? But sometimes we live in a world right that's constantly trying to oversimplify and saying, "Oh no, you're this, you're that, or you're only in this category, you're only in that mm. category." Where in reality, right, and then even the you went to was it Tipunawananga? It's called, mm, yeah. right? And so you you have this interface with with Maori, and then the broader Pacifica or Pacific Oceania context, and so you it's like embracing your own complexity. I don't know what you think, but just me listening to you and thinking about your background, I'm like, man, like you know, with with you embracing your own complexity, right? Your multiple identities, your multiple knowledge systems that you hold, and then you're identifying this complexity in the system. Like that together develops this powerful skill to navigate complex reality, right? The messiness. We visit, we visit like Peli Haofas, or Sea of Islands. On one hand, the dominant, I think, interpretation there is he's critiquing the kind of Western colonial view of the Pacific or of Oceania, right? As tiny, small islands in, in the sea. And he, he challenges that by saying, you know, no, we're our Sea of Islands. You gotta look at it at the vastness of the ocean, of Oceania. And at the same time, while I think that that's true, as I've been thinking about his essay as of recent, I'm like, maybe he was also presenting an internal challenge, not just speaking to the outsider, but to the insider and saying, hey, like we need to think bigger. Mm. And I think about him and his background, right? Like he was raised in Papua, you know, and uh, became a Fijian national, but he's a Tongan. Right, and so he had these multiple points of contact and points of reference and knowledge systems across Oceania, and and maybe he was also challenging his relations within of like, hey, we need to think bigger and more complexly, um, and we need to actually make maybe make RC of Islands a reality, rather than just saying, hey, this is the perspective, like maybe it's a project of of action of how do we move outside the isolated ideas of being oversimplified. You, I'll let you respond, and then Atta's <laughs> looking like he wants to say something too. But just see what you think. But you, that's yeah. what you got me thinking of, Dave. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love those descriptions, Dan. The messiness 
you know, I'm learning to live with messiness. I grew up in a household with, uh, you know, a strong mum and an older sister who didn't like messiness, you know. Um, so I kind of grew up with that mindset. But but now, and thinking of Epeli's, you know, thinking of Epeli's um, provocations, I, I'm learning to function as a traveller, just being comfortable with, you know, complexities and messiness. That doesn't mean I disregard it. It just means I have a, a more open, you know, I'm more open to understanding what's out there. For for us within the Pacific, and I think Ebeli Haofa does, you know, if you're not thinking like that, I suggest we should, because the the assumption that we as Pacific, you know, under this big umbrella, know each other is actually, you know, it's showing now that the more that we are away from the, the whanua, the homeland, we're becoming even more diverse and complex. And that Atongan in Tuatonga in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in Auckland is quite different to one in Wellington and Christchurch. And then if you comparatively look at Australia, that's another whole set of, you know, subjectivities that, that brings to understanding Tongans um, or Tongan identities. And, and I, I, I always confront that because I think it's important for us as travellers. You know, we're academics, but we're, we're actually trying to understand you know, the, the space in between when these knowledge systems contend. Um, we don't do enough of appreciating that because, and, and the reason why I say that is the next generation of, of Tongan researchers coming through in their discourses and what they say, you can tell that they don't spend a lot of time in that space. Yeah? Particularly from Aotearoa, New Zealand, there's, when you hear those things, then you can sort of see the, the depth in them appreciating and understanding these contentious spaces. Not always about, you know, looking for a solution, but spending some time in what it means to, you know, look at it from various perspectives and lenses. And, and I, that's kind of my scholarship at the moment is really trying to disrupt that um, in a way where it doesn't undermine people. Um, being part of the Tongan Global Scholars Network has, you know, because Atta knows this and you know this well, we're, we're just trying to make connections. You know, and, and by making connections, we also see the specificities in us. And, and you learn to appreciate the discourses that are coming through. Um, and that in itself is really strong. Like, it's helpful um, to think and, you know, do research and critically think in that way. Yeah, but I'm learning to live with a messiness, eh? <laughs> Mum probably won't like that, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, let's call it a theoretical message. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the complexities can be better understood or even analyzed as we look at, you know, intergenerationality across, across time and space. So for me and Dave, for Dave and I, with, with similar backgrounds as far as, you know, our parents migrated to Duatonga, and then we were raised here, and then, you know, multiple places, but then eventually were schooled in, you know, New Zealand and me in, in America. 
But when you think about kind of the the schooling of our of our grandparents and even our great grandparents, we can better understand the ways in which our schooling today and the schooling of you know the next generation, which is Dave's son, is playing out. So you know it, within the Tongan context, we have you know Christianity, the creation of the nation state, church, and then we have the you know schools. But all of that was so entangled with Christianity, and we were talking about this before. And then, you know, the early days of schooling, we have corporal punishment and disciplining and all these things. And then, you know, decades later, we have, you know, problems with abuse and all these different things. But for me, you know, people are blaming the Tongans, but I'm like, where did we learn this from? Where did we learn the disciplining from? Where did we learn the corporal punishment that is, that's still in some schools in Donga is still happening today? We learned it from, you know, Western schooling, even with, within Christianity. And so things that Daniel and talk about, like with Christianity, Tongans become better Christians than Christians, than Christians are Christians as far as the way that Tongans have become so um, loyal and faithful to, to their faith and their spirituality that, you know, today you have more, more Tongans expressing a, a stronger Christianity than a lot than the rest of the world. And so understanding kind of how schooling of our parents in the islands across time and space and then being here, being here in New Zealand or in, in the States in which, you know, some of our older siblings were, were more closely tied to the Tongan tradition and culture where then as the family assimilates into the, assimilates into the New Zealand culture or the American culture, young, younger generations have a very different experience as far as the way that they see themselves as Tongans and the, the way that they are they themselves are schooled within the schooling system. So like we've been saying, it's very complex in the way that education plays out because time changes a lot of a lot of different things and then we also have different generations who are experiencing the same thing very differently. Mm-hmm. Our parents, you know, have a high expectation for us within the schooling system, but not realizing the ways that brown bodies, especially brown men, are being, you know, you know, racialized in a very particular way, which leads them into the trades, women into uh, other places where eventually we get to university and, you know, we have low amounts of uh, Pacific, Pacific folks uh, that are enrolling. And, you know, this is all messy stuff that we've been talking oh, about. Yeah. She goes to to a boarding school there, and she tell me story, of, you know, being hit by the, the teachers, and like being reprimanded and in, in, in through corporal physical punishment. And, and it's interesting because when we think about oh, go to school, go to school, be book smart, those kinds of things, right? We're thinking about what we assume or expect is the instruction in a curriculum, but there's this whole other set of learning at schools that we don't often talk about. Like, what are you learning when you're getting discipline in this particular way, mm. right? And now that might not be the case in some of the U.S. schools that I went in, but I grew up at a, I went to a high school that had a police officer stationed at the school, which creates a direct, you know, point of contact to a justice system rather than dealing with it inside of the school. And so what are, what are people actually learning? Not in the classroom, right, but through the institution that they're spending so much time in. And I remember thinking so many people that I know that to me are just brilliant 
You know, I grew up with a stereotype too for Pacific Islanders. Oh, you know, athletes. You know, mm. or, or 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 negative stereotypes too. But let's go with the the positive. And now people, if when people ask me, oh, what is it like working with people from the Moana, or what would you say is the characteristics? And you know, generosity, of course, is one. But I would say, like for me, like spending so much time now, I'm like, the first thing I would say is intellectual. Yeah. I'm like people of, of you know of Tonga and the Moana culturally a strong tradition of intellectualism, critical thinkers, orators, and that's not usually the in any of the stereotypes, right? And and so, you know, I have these mates, but then because of their experience in schools, they'd be like, oh, no, I'm not smart. And I'm like, I would see them at a Faikava or at some other setting, and I'm like, quick-witted, really brilliant oratory, asking important questions, but because it's not in the way that it's being disciplined, they begin to associate themselves as, oh no, I'm not smart, you're the book smart guy. And for me, that had more to do with behavior than anything else. And the, and the assumptions people were making around, around behavior rather than you know, uh, actual capac intellectual capacity. Mm. So that's the one thing I was thinking with Atta stuff, yeah. is, oh man, all the lessons we learned that um, is not maybe expected or thought of as, as learning, you know, we learn how to wait in line for lunches, you know, if that's in your school. You, Anyways, there's all these other things that are teaching you. The building is teaching you stuff. And then on the other side, you know, thinking about what you were talking about, Dave, and I'm like, yeah, that leads to a whole other mess too where, like, if we don't embrace that, it actually produces conflicts of um, those different kinds of Tongans that you mentioned. And that to me, I'm like, if, and this is relevant beyond Tongans, I think, because any group identity you know, if you're aware that it's complex, then you won't have the expectation of one way. And sometimes that happens, right, is whatever cultural identity you come from, if your only points of reference are only within the family or a small community, that becomes the definition of what it means to be Tongan or, or in my case, Mayan or Guatemalan or whatever. And then if I begin to encounter somebody who's outside of that, then you're tempted to be judgmental of like, oh, they're not doing the right stuff, or that's not actually the right way. And I mean, some, some of the words that I hear here, right? Oh, plastic, right? Yeah. Or, or fear this or fear that, you know? Like, um, and I, I grew up with that too, right? You know, even just if you talk, I mean, not that I've <laughs> talked about this, where I'm like, I had a particular idea of what it meant to be where I was from, but I also had an idea of what it meant to be Tongan based off of the Rose Park, Glendale, West Valley communities that, in the west side of Salt Lake. And I began to encounter people outside of that who sounded different, talked different, and were in the same state, right? Like the same region, like an extra five minute drive. And just sounded different, operated different. And then I began thinking, oh, are these guys feet by or what's going on? And then I realized, oh no, that's part of the problem, right? Is that we don't know, we, we're not raised in a realm of complexity. Mm. And so then that creates conflict when you come into interface of like, oh wow, your version of Tongan tradition or your interpretation all of a sudden becomes a point of conflict rather than, oh, adding to the spectrum of possibilities, right? Mm. Instead of our sea of islands, this expansive Oceanian thought, it ends up closing it up, right? Instead of expanding, like Haofa would maybe indicate, of like, oh, you hear something else? Sweet, that expands another expression of this connected identity but instead sometimes it tempts us to be like, oh man, they're doing stuff outside the lines. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You hear it in the young people now where they say, oh, I'm not enough.
know, it's the enough word. And then whenever you hear the enough word, it's often linked to quantifying, you know. Um, but I remember my generation when we were, this was the 90s when we were going through high school, um, sort of the early 90s. My father was very artistic, picked up music so fast. Like he, you know, he'll, he'll just watch someone play something and pick it up. Um, he was part of a band in Tonga. I did a lot of drawing, um, and we sort of saw that at home, just as sitting at the table, he would, he would do that. But he, the stuff he would say to us is, you know, I want you to be book smart. My brothers and cousins were all athletes, started off here because they're big boys, played rugby, played all of that, and I went through this, a similar thing, athletics. When I got a heart, rheumatic heart disease, you know, it, it was kind of a vulnerable time, but it was also a time that allowed me to consider education, you know, the Western education, because I couldn't do the stuff that my brothers and cousins were able to do with sport. And so schooling was the option, and my father would always be, to my sister, my older sister and I, you know, do English, do maths, do science. They're the key subjects we, I want you to do. Art, music, Tongan, not important at school. You know, you learn that at church, you learn Tongan at home, learn Tongan at church, you sing at home, you sing at church. So we were taught those things early and, you know, and then going to school, it kind of fit with what my father was asking, you know, me to do. But my, my cousins and brothers didn't do well at school. Because, you know, for them it was about sort of living and going to school to find out how they could, you know, bring out their, their, the sports and, and all the things that they were good at. So they were finding, trying to find that at high school. And I was one of the ones that kind of finished. I wouldn't say I was fortunate, but I would say that it's, that, you know, when you, when you talked about the complexities, these are complexities that we have to face. And then the question of whether your identity is Tongan enough is kind of shaped in those, you know, the messiness of trying to figure that out. And now my responsibility as you get to a certain stage in your life is trying to, you know, do what my grandparents and them have tried to do with, did with us, sort of alleviate some of the tensions when they saw we were facing these things. That's why I really love the, the place that grandparents, um, you know, generations have together because there are some things that the older generation can see that, you know, your parents can't. And so they try and intervene. Yeah. And there's just that richness and that kind of, you know, thing. It's not like that now because our, our families are changing. Our kinship, connections and ties are changing. Um, but I, I spend time in the intergenerationality or tangata, is, is what Tongans use to describe that because I, it offers a lot more depth to figuring things out rather than... Yeah. And, th and there's like a... There's, again, like we were talking about, there's all these different learnings that happen, mm -hmm. right, that isn't always accounted for, but in that intergenerationality, as you're saying that, it's, you know, it's just kind of triggering in me this, this idea as well, and kind of just recent observations for myself, even in my own fauna, is that um, 
like yeah like I'm kind of in between right I'm in between my kids and, and, and my parents and and that means that I have a unique relationship to both of those parties but when I see my my parents and my kids they're able to do stuff with each other that I can't yeah. right like I feel like my kids introduce new radical ideas to my parents in ways that they would never <laughs> accept it from me because it's their grandkids mm -hmm. and on the other side of it they have a there's a sense of kind of respect and um, and care that my kids have in listening and responding to my parents that they don't always have for me <laughs> in yeah. the same kind of way, right? And so there is something unique and important about that that intergenerational kind of connection. And, and I'm, you know, and I think this is something that's so powerful for for indigenous peoples around the world, but in particular, in my experience, like that's why I love hanging out with Tongans, is is because I do see that. that I see that more than I do in other groups that I'm also connected with, including my own family, as I've seen the generations change over time. And it is such an important thing. And you look at even people outside of that. There was a Netflix documentary that I was looking at that looked at bringing old, old folks together with kindergartners. And, and again, this is dealing with people who don't have an immediate kinship tie, but both had a need, right? Like mm -hmm. these young kids had the need of someone who was going to have patience with them that in a way that others wouldn't. And these older people had the need as well to have attention and connection in the way that others weren't. And it was such a unique and beautiful thing to observe. And these are people that don't have kinship ties. <laughs> and these are people who are just kind of in the mainstream society, you know, ha have developed this, this issue. And I'm like, oh man, that's, it was cool to see that. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, man, like, you know, it's, it's right there. Mm -hmm. If it's held on to, and as you mentioned earlier, Tawiba, if it's nurtured. Right, and so if you if you hold on to that or nurture that intergenerationality, like there's a lot of value there, even if it's mm -hmm. not valued in the systems that we're in, you know. Mm -hmm. Even like within the Tongan modern social structure, there are certain restrictions, like what you're talking about with grandchildren. Then, there's certain restrictions that you have with your parents, and specifically to your dad, the tapus that you have with your dad, and even his family. And so, like I was reading some of um, Adrian Kepler's work. You know, she just passed away this year. And you know, she was talking about the concept of eiki mokopuna and the ways that grandchildren are able to move beyond the restrictions of their parents and have an open relationship with their, with their grandparents that, they, can, that they, they never could have. And so within a lot of Tongan family structures, you see a lot of grandparents being you know, very integral parts of mm -hmm. raising the children, especially within the modern system of parents have to work, grandparents are old, they eventually move in with one of their ch children um, and they kind of help raise the children. Within the modern context, they teach them the language. And so for me, in the States, you know, my grandparents died early, and so we didn't have that type of guidance. But I can see the differences in other Tongan families where if they had a Tongan grandparent, how much they were able to stay close to the Tongan language, mm -hmm. the Tongan culture, the protocols, the traditions, and all those different things. Yes, church is a very big part of it, but it's where you have you know, the older generations of our grandparents, in a, in, and in a lot of cases that don't speak English, that children are forced to, you know, maintain those relationships with their grandparents while integrating and assimilating into the schooling system of English and the American culture. So for me, one of the biggest things that I think about is that, you know, if my, gra if my parents were raised by their grandparents and their parents, and my grandparents were raised by their grandparents, that generation, which is the last generation, which is the dying generation right now, so they're in their late 80s, 90s, 
if my grandparents were raised by their grandparents, this is the last generation before the creation of the nation state that mm -hmm. raised my grandparents. And so if we don't, if we don't get the knowledges, the language before the language was nationalized, right? Mm -hmm. the, the pre-Christian kind of ways of understanding the world, mm -hmm. which is in a dying generation, I don't think there's very, very, I don't, I don't, I can name a lot of Tongans who are above the age of 90. If we, if we don't get that, that, the knowledge and kind of the way of thinking and living and, and being, then it's just going to be a tragedy when, when this last generation is, is gone because they're our last connection to a pre-colonial, mm -hmm. pre-Tongan past. Mm -hmm. When you position it that way, Arthur, it just highlights the, you know, the significance of, of the knowledges that are, that are shared eh? or transmitted over, over time. And, and if we're not thinking like that, you know, what, what sort of hope do we have for those coming after? In terms of the connection to that, you know, the the pre-Christian, pre you know, we're we're oral, we're an oral culture, and so I keep thinking about just how everything's happening in, in our society, and there's very little opportunities to appreciate that time with, you know, with grandparents. You see snippets of it, you know, but. Collectively, as a as a family unit, you know, people, what well, my own family, for example, um, never really appreciated having my grandmother around, because my grandfather passed away when I was, you know, young, until she had passed, and now they're starting to remember, uh, or ask questions of, we should have asked my grandmother, about this va, eh? with with this other lineage, and so they're missing that. And they're only realizing that after. So it's quite a significant, you know, sort of realization when you position grandparents. And, and a recent one that I, I found really cool was my grandfather, my, my wife's um, father is quite a strong because um, he's minister of their church and always quite strict and strong with his kids. Like last couple of days, my son. Because he loves his meat, um, and then he got a he got a telling off, you know, for for eating a lot of meat, and we weren't really looking, but everybody sort of continued eating, and my grandfather, uh, not my grandfather, his grandfather, pushed his bowl of meat across to him, to to my son. But I I had, you know, my peripheral vision, I saw it. He pushed it across, and he goes, you know, that that little moment for maybe. You know, for, for my son, that's kind of a special moment that you kind of, you know, have to appreciate. But then after he did that, he then shared with him why he needed to eat his veggies as well. He wouldn't have done that with his own kids. <laughs> but he, you know, he, he had just this, I think, the offer that he has for, for his kids' kids. And the way that they do things just quite different. But I think those are key moments for for my, you know, my son and my nephews and nieces. That it's it's a way that they can help them deal with some of the issues that they're facing at the moment. Yeah? Yeah. Just that different extra care yeah. that grandparents give that parents don't or can't at that time. Yeah. I thought, man. 
That reminds yeah. me, like, my, my mom lately, she's, that's, she's been constantly reminding me of, she's like, I, I learned to be a parent once it was done, <laughs> right? Because you, you, you parent, and then once you're done with that uh, experience, yeah. you finally figured it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then what you have left is the grandkids. <laughs> but then as parents, right, like, there's that, it's kind of like we're, we're uh, I don't know, everyone's a little bit different, of course, right? But for me, I, like, that could be a tension as well, right? Mm. Where I'm like, hey, you know, don't undermine me as a parent, <laughs> you know? Um, but at the same time, like, it reminds me of, you know, I was an adolescent at one time, right? And I wanted the room to make my mistakes. Mm. And then, you know, now I guess <coughs> maybe that's all I want is the room to make my mistakes too. But the stakes are shared, right? Because it's not just my kids, it's mm. their grandkids, right? And so that's why sometimes I think those interventions take place and we need to find healthy ways to do that, but I love that example you gave, right? Because it, it did remind me of my mom. She's always just like, oh, yeah, like, I, I finally figured out how to be a parent once I finished being a parent. And so that's what I try to bring that experience now as a grandparent, mm. you know? And then mm. I was also thinking uh, Vandana Shiva, environmental activist and philosopher, she was always advocating for what the, the world needs, you know? There's so many crises in the world right now. And she's like, our grandmother's universities. Mm. And that's what she was saying. It's like there needs to be grandmothers universities all over the world where that, that knowledge, that experience, that patience, that care of, of kind of that grandparent generation and you know, to to reconnect that access for, for mm. young young people, you know. Anyways, man, no, awesome stuff. Let's have a cup and then uh, <laughs> we'll do a we'll, we'll go a little bit more here. Man, too much bro, it's like cool. there's so many things I, I, I want us to, to chat about, but um, and then some of the other things that you do, right, where you mentioned um, critical indigenous studies, and I wonder how much of that, I, mean, I can see you applying that lens with our discussion, but also, you know, thinking about, uh, another thing that you've done as well is push and challenge people to really try to grasp a greater depth of terms and concepts, and I really like that when you do that. And I try to apply those things that you've said, right? Like, I, I should have, I don't speak fluently, but the words that I have, like, I'm always trying to be like, unravel deeper and more. Anyways, there's a lot there, but I'm wondering, it's up to you, whatever you, whatever you feel you, you want to respond to, but I was thinking about critical indigenous studies and, and how does that apply, or even the post-human stuff you've been looking at mm. recently. Like, how, do, how does that come into the things that we've talked about and, and also kind of trying to get that deeper richness of what do we actually mean when we're using terms, you know, and concepts. The the example lately, and that's why I like um, listening to why indigenous, you know, to the stuff that, that like from Lana and then Jake and uh, Enoke. The recent one is because I see just the, you know, providing a space to not critique for the sake of critiquing, but an open space where you can have discussions about these tensions of indigenous knowledges and indigenous concepts in ways that don't perpetuate oppressiveness. Because that was kind of the move by Eileen Morton Robinson and Brendan Hukofitun to really position critical in, in relation to indigenous studies is because sometimes indigenous studies can romanticize you know, um, knowledge in a way that ignores the oppressive nature. You know, when, when you're bringing these indigenous concepts, that they carry these tendencies to be you know, oppressive when you're bringing in status. Yeah? 
and, and you're bringing in the word ha when you're looking at lineage, that implies status. And with status comes power um, and all those you know, contentions in it. And when I, I mean, when I work with Tongan concepts, I try to, to kind of deconstruct it. Take it for what people say about it, but then I deconstruct it. And because quite often these concepts are bounded, they're, they're coupled, you know, they're made up by two or three other concepts. Um, and when you deconstruct them and appreciate what they mean on their own and its various contexts, of course, you, and then bringing them together, you can kind of see the reason for its trajectory. Like, in that particular time, it was used for that. And unless you deconstruct it, you won't get to appreciate its complexities. Um, so, f for example... A, a recent concept we've been working with is, is um, manava, with the macron, yeah? to, to, to breathe and, and breathe and give life, and manava without the macron. Um, and then you deconstruct a mana, meva, mana meva. And so it made me think when they constructed that term at the time, did they see the limitation that mana? and Va had on their own. So they needed something, they needed to couple them, you know, to make something more powerful for their community to, you know, really appreciate that the womb is a life giver um, and the significance of woman in giving life, but also knowledge. Um, and I keep, what you know, it, it forces me by deconstructing it forces me to appreciate their their origin as concepts and then obviously people have their own definitions of them but I encourage that in my postgrad students is to not just take a concept even a western one and take it face value but actually do the the decluttering which is what Tuiatua you know reminds us to do trace its whakapapa and then help people have used it and then how are you going to use it in your study to articulate that? Um, but I think concepts offer another, yeah, they, they offer potentialities for indigenous scholars. Um, because you, you, you know, you, communities have their own understanding of these concepts. Uh, and a recent one is like um, siota aki. And siota aki is like usually used when you're, backstabbing someone, so it has that connotation, right? It's bad. But what if you brought that into teaching and then you deconstruct it and say, see your perspectives, ta'aki, deconstruct or unpack. You do that individually and then what happens when you come together? But fronting va, yeah? fronting va in that space of tension when sio and ta'aki come together. I, I, I enjoy doing that stuff. Um, that's not to say I'm, I'm, I have fluency in the language. It means it allows for critical depth. And that, that's kind of what I want to encourage a lot of our scholars, is to don't just take a concept face value. Do justice and go deep into it. Post-humanism is a, another space where I've sort of learned to understand, but then bring in these concepts, these Tongan concepts, because they add a different flavour. 
and they provide a perspective that posthumanists don't talk about. Um, and that's what I try and you know, bring. And and not to say I, I do it all the time or I'm good at it. It just means I, I've invested time in trying to do that for the, the next generation. Um. Abba, you have anything? No, I'm, just, I'm, I'm excited for Dave and uh, in, in his kind of his trajectory and his journey that he's already on. You know, within the space that we're here, here in Aotearoa, but even with the, the connections that we've made with Oz and the United and, and the US, you know, Dave navigates a space that me myself couldn't navigate as far as being more in between with the the older scholar generation, where I, I do want to be in that space, but as far as kind of where I am now, I have a lot of anxieties in kind of a lot of the critical or decolonial or provocative ideas I have myself. I'm just glad that Dave um, still considers me a friend. <laughs> Even though I talk a lot, I have a lot of ideas. I, I mean, me, myself, and Dave as well has good intentions and for the, well, for the mm -hmm. benefit of not only Tongan peoples, but, you know, Maori, Pacific, and indigenous peoples across the world. So, you know, thank you, Dave, for the relationship that we've built, and I'm excited for what's to come. There's more to go. I hope people will, will look more to your work as well and, and keep an eye out for you. For me, you're, you're such an important thinker, obviously, within the, the Tongan uh, network of, of intellectuals, and uh, but bigger than that for me as well. Like, again, like you mentioned, you know, there's a... Uh, and one thing that I think you've... De I'll say this, you know, that you've demonstrated throughout our Talanoa and, and always is that you have a, a relational ethic that that I like personally, we're all in relation all over the world mm -hmm. and there might be bad relations, right? Mm -hmm. With institutions at times and, and different things, but there, there's a particular relational ethic that you, that you exemplify that um, for me, uh, I appreciate and I appreciate that aesthetic where you, you're willing to, to go into these, you know, very difficult and challenging ideas, but at the same time have, have always kind of, like you mentioned, right, you don't want to undermine the, the, the va and these other relations that you're also a part of and, and I think that's you know one thing that I've been thinking about as well in my, my current work also is how do we confront mm. the bad relations that we're forced into in the modern world and and find other ways of relating and I think what you do and demonstrate is, is one of those portals of hey there's a different ethic of relationships that exists that, that we can do where we can yeah, I mean, we can scrap, you know, me and the debate all the time, you know, but uh, <laughs> and we don't have to agree, mm -hmm. but but we uphold each other's manna, and like you mentioned, like mm -hmm. the va, right, we, we, we acknowledge that whether we like it or not, there's that va, and remember Kusitino Mahina Kufanga, he mentioned one time, and that's how I became aware of it, that in, in Te Reo Maori, you have um, like hoa, right, mm -hmm. and then others have told me that it's hoa haide, right, for a comrade, close friend, close companion, partner, but then your enemy, the word is hoariri, right? And so you're, you're, it's the same thing, friend, partner, companion, but angry. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, I love that. And yeah. I remember that it was, again, a Tongan who introduced that te reo Māori to me. And it's like those unpacking of those words. And when you understand that hoahaire, right, it's, it's, it's your comrade, your companion, your, you know, your, your, your partner in crime, partner in liberation or whatever, and then you have your hoariri, which might be your enemy, but it's still like you're entangled in that relationship, mm. right? 
your only enemy is if you have <laughs> a closeness. <laughs> mm, <laughs> and so mm. there's an intimacy there, even if it's not a, a, a happy one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so I love how you operate, you know, and I think that's a great uh, uh, example for, for folks. Thanks again for sharing your knowledge. Malo apito. Yeah, I, I just want to advocate for why indigenous having this kind of environment is is really important for to have these discussions because you don't always have these opportunities or these environments to have these discussions and you you, you guys sort of summed it up really well um, you can have these discussions and still be friends you know you you don't have to be you know enemies after um, because there's very few of us around um, so it's it doesn't make sense to have, you know, to lose people. And and I really value Why Indigenous because I, you know, it's, it's a, a space that I can get my postgrads to come and just listen to the scholarship that's out there. And they know, you know, they've given readings, but they don't, you know, they haven't heard them speak. They, so this is an opportunity for them to, to listen to, you know, Indigenous scholars. So, yeah, keep keep doing all that awesome work and, and getting people to come on so, yeah hello oh.